friends, Romans, countrymen, and all people not thoroughly described by those previous points. Welcome to this Buds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I am joined today, of course, by Graysman. She got a great ass! And you got your head all the way up it! Does that mean it's been worn as, like, a hat? Um, I'm or... assuming it's an, an ass hat, yes. That seems impractical in a number of scenarios. You wouldn't want to be stuck by that at cinema. <laughs> I myself favour just the one cheek worn as a as a berry, <laughs> not the full ass. <laughs> Never go full ass. We've, we've already gone down. A dark path. Yes. Which is what you get when your head's all the way up there, I suppose. What I, what I meant to say was, hello. No true Tavendale, sadly. He is on holiday, as he has been for the past couple of podcasts. You've not had him fed into a wood chip or anything like that. He'll be back soon. But until then, you're stuck with us two miscreants. And today we're going to talk about the wonderful world of mind-altering film <laughs> Mind-altering Phil. <laughs> Mind-altering Phil, our good friend. <laughs> one of the one of the more obscure plot contrivances recently yes. in EastEnders. <laughs> no, uh, films where you're never quite sure what's going on, or at least the protagonists aren't, and that kind of falls through to the audience. So lots of twists and turns to be had in both Shutter Island and Jacob's Ladder, which are her chosen subjects for this podcast. Just a couple of points I'm recording as an insert after the fact. Uh, firstly, of course, we will be delving quite heavily into spoiler territory for these two films, so if you haven't seen them, please, by all means, go and watch them first before you listen to us uh, spoil them heavily for you. And secondly, there was a bit of a problem with Craig's audio on this track, so it sounds a little bit thinner than you may be used to on a regular basis, but it's still perfectly listenable, and I'm sure we'll be back to the quality that you're more familiar with on our next episode. Let's kick off with the earliest, uh, going chronologically, I suppose, uh, with Jacob's Ladder. Greg? Yes, Jacob's Ladder. Adrian Lynn followed up commercial Dynamite Fatal Attraction with this effort. A breakthrough picture for the then low-profile actor known today as Tim Robbins, which deals ostensibly with the trauma of war upon returning veterans, but through a very dark and twisted lens. Beginning in Da Nang, Vietnam, Robbins portrays the titular Jacob Singer, a PhD graduate who returns home to become a postman after apparently narrowly escaping death at the end of a Viet Cong bayonet. Of course, anyone of passing familiarity with the biblical tale from which the movie lends its name will immediately suspect that things are not quite as they appear. And indeed, it's not long before Jacob's frequent flashbacks begin taking on increasingly severe demonic overtones. The narrative gradually unravels to subject an increasingly confused Jacob to multiple realities, which collectively question his existence as a returning veteran, and indeed, his very sanity. Placing him alternately at points before and after the war, with and without his possibly now estranged wife, and plus or minus Macaulay Culkin as a son who may or may not have died in a tragic accident after the war. Always good to laugh while talking about <laughs> children dying in tragic accidents, I do apologise. It's, it's probably more the presence of Macaulay Culkin, isn't it? Yes, because... you can't say the name without picturing his face and that little mop of hair that just cannot be taken seriously at any junction. <laughs> These variants lead to a dogleg in the plot whereby the movie decides it would quite like to be a conspiracy thriller for 20 minutes or so, introducing the revelation that Jacob and his squad mates may have been subjected to mind-altering drugs testing by the military. That old gem. Jacob's Ladder received mixed reviews upon its release, and it's easy to see why. This is a movie that aims for meaningful misdirection while frequently bludgeoning its audience with overt biblical and artistic references. And for the purposes of this episode of our podcast, it's certainly interesting to see how this particular style of narrative has evolved in terms of sophistication over the intervening years. Having watched this movie somewhere in the region of 15 to 20 years ago, I recall rather enjoying it at the time. 
though said narrative refinements and my own blossoming faculties have <laughs> since then rendered it... So, Scott, why are you laughing? <laughs> have since then rendered its flaws painfully obvious. Most egregious amongst these errors is a baffling decision to bring things to an abrupt halt with a completely unambiguous ending that somewhat undermines the movie's frantic attempts to cause meaningful obfuscation over the preceding two hours, giving the audience cause to question just what the point of it all actually was. Perhaps it speaks of Lynn's experience with the movie and its reception that his next project, Indecent Proposal, reverted to the safety net of adult relationship thriller. But Jacob's Ladder is not without its fans, and there is certainly still much to enjoy, not least of all a performance from Robbins that transcends the showcase afforded him by the writing. There is strong support also from the now greatly missed Elizabeth Pena, and a decent turn from Danny Aiello as Jacob's chiropractor. Though, for all the wisdom he is supposed to afford Singer in unravelling his mind, (laughs) his character Louis is given far too little screen time, and is basically just Danny Aiello. Stylistically, the movie mostly succeeds, and if you can put aside various overt iconographies, there is much to be gained from director Lynn's inspiration, drawn from the likes of Diane Arbus and Joel Peter Vitkin. When Bruce Joel Rubin's script isn't busy pulling the rug out from under its own feet, Jacob's Ladder offers some inspired moments of atmosphere and generally un- genuinely unsettling glimpses of insanity, from the early subway scene that evokes tones of David Lynch, through the movie's infamous thrashing heads motif. Mm. It's It's understandable why the new regime at Paramount sidestepped the movie upon Ruben and Lynn's refusal to surrender edit, though I'm not entirely sure it was for the right reasons, especially given much of the kerfuffle reputedly centred around the movie's ending. Jacob's Ladder remains an interesting experiment in itself, and certainly ought to be credited for attempting, at least, the mainstream material, which is quite clearly utterly counter-commercial. After returning to the warm narrative bosom of marital infidelity, Adrian <laughs> Lynn never did attempt anything so adventurous again, the predictably controversial nature of 1997's adaptation of Lolita aside, and it feels like something of a shame. For all its flaws, there is enough evidence of art within Jacob's Ladder to suggest that its director might have fared well in time had he chosen to follow a more disturbing thread of thriller. Perhaps upcoming project Black Roads hints at a return to this kind of thing, in which case, colour me intrigued. However, perhaps also upcoming marital infidelity piece, Deepwater, suggests otherwise. <laughs> Scott, it's over to you. Yes, I actually had not seen this film at all until oh, really? Monday, a few days before this. So this is partly why I was asking on Twitter uh, through our Fudzone film account, why not follow us if you haven't already, if this was really you know, as good as I thought it was. Because the first time watching this through, I heartily enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But even from that, you can see there's certain things that obfuscation over actual quality. And mm-hmm. uh, they get some feedback from... Uh, Pat and Jason binge movies, Pat and Jason on the Twitters, it says that Jacob's Ladder was needless in its reality bending to cover up that there wasn't really much going on, which mm. I think kind of backs up what you were saying there as well, and, and, and the feeling that I had. I quite enjoyed going watching this through the first time, but it's yeah. not something that I feel that I think I would ever particularly care to go back on. Mm-hmm. There's definitely an air of the Emperor's new clothes about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the narrative is it's certainly more than interesting enough to sit and watch through once. And I think it's also something that's perhaps worth seeing just for the influence that it has had on yeah. things uh, going forward. As, as you mentioned, the uh, the undercranked film with the guy moving his head, which is, a when you think about it, a very simple effect, but it is very effective. And of course, you've seen that. Uh, oh, very unsettling um, when it's used sparingly as it is here, yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, that's shown up in a, some other films that, that I can think of, and it's, it, it works very well. It's a, it's a really good low-budget effect, a good way to get uh, some, some quite good effects work. And as you say, there's some 
really disturbing imagery all the way throughout it. It's all about um, Francis Bacon and uh, mm-hmm. with uh, these scenes towards the end and a lot of stuff that uh, seems to be Lynchian. The doctors with the with no eyes, that sort of thing. There's lots mm-hmm. of just really freaky imagery going on throughout that it. That early shot of the subway train running yeah. past them with all the sort of tortured souls looking out at him. Yes, and it, it, I think it's actually handling that quite well, to the point mm. where I, I wish it had been a little bit, as you say, a little bit more ambiguous. It, it has a very definite ending. There's no two ways to take this film. And and it's that's what's baffling. It's the kind of ending that I would expect the studio to have wanted to please audiences. So I'm kind of intrigued now as to um, as to what it was Paramount actually demanded uh, of the ending. If it wasn't that, then what was it that they got so upset about and that Lennon Rubin walked away and uh, ended up being financed by Carolco instead? Yeah, very puzzling. It's it's just odd. Given that there's clearly pretenses towards, as you say, art throughout the rest of it, it's not just trying to be a schlock horror slash thriller. There is clearly some attempt, whether it's worked or not, to make this be something a bit greater. Mm. And to walk away from it at the last minute seems just a bit weird. Yeah. Um, if, if that's the revision, you know, fine, but it just seems odd. There's a number of ways you could have taken this towards the end other than just saying, oh, yes, actually, it was all a dream. And uh, <laughs> walking out of the shower like JR did in Dallas, it's a, it's a strange choice of ending, and I'm not quite sure I get it. It's a shame, really, because so much and so many elements of the movie work. I mean, by and large, the, the performances are, are great stylistically and visually. The movie's very appealing, and in contrast to something like Shutter Island, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's got a very sort of lo-fi, dirty, kind of janky look about it, even though at the time, I mean, about the budget of $25 million in 1990, it wasn't yes. chump change. But it very much succeeds at this quite haunted imagery. There's a lot of really cool location work um, that the camera work makes good use of. Yeah. Lennon, his location scouts and his cinematographer, have somehow found all of these inner city locations which are just, you know, obviously they've cleared out a couple of streets here and there or, or, well, alleys and passages and sort of pathways across bridges and things, which when they've cleared out, they've really managed to somehow find these locations which are just far enough removed from reality that they're kind of unsettling, but you can't quite figure out why. And it's largely down to the absence of other characters, but in a, in a way that I haven't really seen other films capture quite so well. It is quite, it is almost nightmarish, the kind of some of the, um, some of the settings that they managed to evoke. But the biggest flaw with the movie, everything really comes down to the narrative. It's the narrative decisions that are so heavily flawed that, yeah. you know, a, a film, if a film has a great narrative and great locations and great visuals, Maybe get away with some performances being subpar. Conversely, with great performances, maybe if it's not so strong visually, that's fine if the narrative's intact. The one thing that you can't excuse and that you can't really avoid is that if your film has a fundamentally flawed narrative and just makes the wrong choices at three or four points throughout the film, then there's no coming back from that. And I really think that's what this suffers from most. I did still enjoy watching it again. I'd, I'd be interested to know if I'd watched it again earlier on how I would have felt about it but now as I say it's been quite a few years since I first saw this movie and really startled as to A, how little of it I remembered considering I had a great recollection of really enjoying it um, but also how far removed from that original opinion actually this viewing was so it's certainly an interesting piece and like you say I, I would definitely recommend it to people with the caveat that you know, I would um, not maybe not to the casual viewer, uh, but to you know, if you have an interest in psychological thrillers, then it's definitely worth watching, as you say, as much from a point of view as how it has gone on to inform 
much the cinematic landscape, but uh, various media and aspects of, of uh, the cultural landscape since. Well, of course, uh, your things like your Silent Hills and other such. Uh, yes, video I was going to say, uh, uh, very, perhaps very bizarrely, yeah, it's had a it's had a great um, impact on uh, the aesthetic of uh, video games, which <laughs> isn't perhaps what you'd expect from from something like this. But there you go; it clearly got its hooks into some of influential figures in that sphere. For me, the film wins one extra star by having a scene where a character is chased by a car down a road, and rather than just simply running away from it, he does at least attempt to go from side to side to try and get out of the way of the damn thing unilaterally, rather than just falling away. So, fair play to Tim Robbins for that. (laughs) And just a shout out to one of our regular... uh, (laughs) One of our subscribers who regularly gives feedback on uh, on Twitter, uh, Matt Toller, if you're listening. Serpentine! (laughs) <laughs> so let's, I suppose, let's move on then and talk a bit about Shutter Island, if your throat is up to it, sir. We'll, we'll see how far we get. Uh, Martin Scorsese in 2010 gave us Shutter Island. For the purposes of science, I went back and listened to what we'd said about this back in the heady days of the OneLiner.com's podcast, and I was partially surprised to find us all being marginally negative about it. Really? And and I think that was probably largely in line with critical opinion at the time, certainly going by the Metacritic score it has today. Um, so I was wildly surprised when I sat there and watched it myself again, because I enjoyed it so much more second time round. Uh, mm. it's, it's of no comparison, really. So plot-wise, we were introduced to Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, seasick US Marshal, Terry Daniels, on a choppy ferry to the titular Shutter Island, an institution for the criminally insane. He's there to assist in the hunt for a dangerous escaped prisoner, Rachel Solano, along with his new partner, Chuck All, played by Mark Ruffalo. On making landfall, it's pretty clear that things are not what they seem from the outset, and indeed if you've watched any of the trailers, you'll know that there's definitely something is going on and it's not quite on the up and up, and while Teddy's uh, on his way through the investigation, it's clear that characters are acting very strangely. The chief medical officer of the place, uh, Dr. Crawley's, uh, played by Ben Kingsley, seems cooperative, but he's certainly hiding something. There seems to be strange subplots going on with Dr. Nairing's character, uh, Max von Sydow, who may or may not be a Nazi, which ties back into some flashbacks that Teddy keeps having of his uh, past in liberating the Dachau concentration camp and the atrocities that he uncovered there, and uh, possibly committed himself. And it becomes clear that throughout the course of the thing that there's something clearly not right with Teddy, as much as he's clearly having some mental issues stemming from the death of his wife in a fire, which when we go on to uncover what actually happens into, into the film and of course, spoilers, uh, spoiler warning. Um, it turns out, of course, that Teddy himself is a, one of the mental patients. And while he's been running around the island desperately trying to seek down uh, Rachel Solano and along the way inventing further reasons for him to be doing so partially, it's because the prisoner who he held responsible for setting the fire that, that killed his wife is there. And then it becomes a, a government mind control program as he's getting increasingly, increasingly off his meds. And it's soon becoming apparent that uh, yeah, what we're really here, as uncovered at the end, is that Teddy himself is the person responsible for killing his wife after his wife killed their three children. But he's had a bit of a break from reality and invented this elaborate fantasy to maintain what's left of his sanity. This is a kind of last-ditch LARPing exercise <laughs> to get uh, <laughs> to finally have um, um, realised that the truth of it before they go through the path of just lobotomising him. And it's that does explain away a lot of the very strange occurrences throughout the rest of the film. Things like the strange attitudes that the nurses and doctors have to him, because and the guards, of course, who are are actually nominally assisting the investigation of one of their most dangerous prisoners. It's a really interesting piece. Um, surprised, I think, 
I, I guess on the first first time through it, it just seemed a little bit too strange on a first viewing. I think it takes two viewings at least for you to actually get the, the full flavour of this, because all the things that we were talking about in sort of couch terms, because we didn't want to give any spoilers on that podcast, all the things like the, the weird choice of some framing, some of the strange camera angles that's taken, you know, there's there, there's barely one that's not Dutch in here, and uh, other little, you know, nicer little uh, touches that probably wouldn't have noticed at the time, things like the way the, the waters, you know, the, the, the almost infamous glass of water thing that's going on with when he's giving one of the interviews. There's lots of really nice touches all the way throughout it that kind of helps you pick up on what exactly what's going on that you may have either missed or was not, you're not particularly focused on first time round, and it makes a lot more sense second time round. Now, clearly, Scorsese's wearing his influences on his sleeve here. It's all very Hitchcockian, and there's sure. you know, multiple references to, you know, classic horror stuff like. Uh, Dr. Caligari, things like that. But I think I was tremendously excited to watch this through a second time round, and particularly uh, you get a lot more nuance in the reasoning behind the way that Leonardo DiCaprio has chosen to play it. It may be his best role. A very, oh. very good performance from him. Probably more Oscar worthy here than he is in uh, Wolf of Wall Street, but you know, that's picking hairs. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was uh, The Revenant, wasn't it? The Revenant. Uh, yeah. Revenant, yes. Um, in, in which case, certainly much more <laughs> worthy of it in this film. And yes, I, I was surprised to find myself enjoying it quite so much. Almost everything that I think on first viewing I thought seemed either strange or a flaw, like something like the, the strange bombastic score that you get to start the film off with, more or less, as they, they, go, they come up to the island and the way the characters are reacting to each other, uh, all that when you watch it through with the, the benefit of knowing precisely what the twist is. We all knew there was some kind of twist coming when we watched it the first time through that had already been given away by the trailers, but you know, precisely what was the, the, the exact details of it, of course, we didn't know. And I think when you know that and watch it again a second time, it becomes a much better and much more interesting film. And I think that is now mm. why uh, I was looking earlier, I forget the exact details, but it's got like a Metacritic rating, which was largely you know, professional reviews at the time of like 60%, and its user rating's now up at about 80-something percent, something like that. Uh, and yeah. I think that is almost certainly because when you watch this again, it's much easier to appreciate what they've tried to do here second time round. It's got a really interesting scope. As grand and silly a thriller as you can get away with, I think, and still have some kind of form of suspense throughout it, and it all works really, yeah. really well. Yeah, so we heartily enjoyed this, watching it again. I think it's it's notable for me. I, I, I'm surprised this was just the second time you'd watched it. Yes. Ah. I've watched it three or four times since, and each time I've enjoyed it. If you know, um, if if not as much as the last time, then yeah, slightly more. Uh, and I'm surprised I might actually have to go back and listen to our opinions <laughs> myself from the the time of release. If I recall correctly, this was the last film at which I fell asleep during the cinema. Yes. Um, and yes, I think I I missed the car explosion somehow. There you go. <laughs> and he really loved that car. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a real shame. Yeah, my thoughts on it at the time were I remember enjoying it in the cinema, but um, to an extent, but finding it perhaps a little long and tedious. And I think part of the it's it's an odd beast because part of the problem I think it has is that when you are setting up a movie this way, it becomes it's almost impossible not to second guess how it's going to pan out. Yeah. It's such a well worn trope at this point that really within a couple of minutes, you know, if not certainly the first two reels, you're thinking to yourself, right, okay, he's going to turn out. I'm not sure how it's going to happen because it covers its tracks sufficiently and, and obfuscates the um, the narrative enough to keep you certainly guessing as to more as to how it will be engineered to turn out that way as opposed to what way it's going to turn out. Yeah. Um, you can be fairly be fairly certain of what the ending will be. A lot of the fun comes in actually figuring out how the pieces are going to fit together. 
it does a pretty good job at that. I mean, it ties itself in knots uh, on a couple of occasions, and I feel like perhaps that whole narrative is slightly overwrought at points. But it's all towards a very definite goal and a very definite purpose in this case, which I think was lacking in Jacob's Ladder. And actually, it's a rare case of, yeah, I can completely understand why on first viewing this movie might be a little bit frustrating. But actually, the surprise is that once you've gotten the revelation that you knew was coming anyway out of the way, on a second viewing, much of the enjoyment very much comes from going back, already understanding what's happened and a number of the pieces, and actually then finding all the other little clues, as you say. There's a great deal of reward in that, and it actually turns out to be a much more cleverly structured film than you would expect. Also for something, for a plot that um, obviously hinges on such a huge revelation, I was really surprised after I saw this film in the cinema to then read Dennis Lehane's novel on which it's based. Um, right. and find that actually it didn't ruin my enjoyment of the novel either. It's uh, a very faithful adaptation and actually one of the more one of the more fitting and successful adaptations that I've read from a popular novel like that. For me, one of the most interesting of Scorsese's films to go, or perhaps the most interesting of Scorsese's films to compare it to, is his preceding movie, which was The Departed, um, which mm. of course was the movie for which Scorsese finally picked up his Oscar for Best Director, much to the disappointment of everyone who, you know, quite quite rightfully feels he probably should have gotten that about 20 years earlier, if, well, 30 years earlier yeah. for Raging Bull, um, and certainly a good 25 years earlier for, uh, or thereabouts, for Goodfellas. And actually, the more I watch these repeat, and as much as I do actually enjoy The, the, the Departed, Shutter Island, as it turns out, is the much better paced, much more succinct and tightly structured movie and it's also got a really enjoyable visual and crucially audible aesthetic that really ties it together quite nicely and helps in certainly in some of those some of those scenes set in Dachau where the the main character goes through a sort of nightmare recreation of his experiences in Dachau um, which all take place at night and he's sort of being stared at by the bodies of uh, victims of the holocaust um, some mm. of that stuff is actually quite genuinely unsettling. Yeah. Um, and as much of it comes down to the, the sound design as it does just the, the, the visual aspect of it. And taken all together, it's a, for something which is ostensibly really a, a B-movie with a much bigger budget and with actors, yeah. actors way above the grade that it, it requires, it's a very, very surprisingly rewarding film. And, I mean, well, I say, well, it's not up there with Raging Bull and Goodfellas. <sighs> top top half of Scorsese's back catalogue, is that pushing it? I, th- I think it's certainly a better film than something like Casino. Um, mm. And I'm, I wasn't a great fan of, uh, what was the, was it Hugo? Yeah. Yeah, I actually found Hugo insufferable. So certainly of, the, of that period, Scorsese's best work. And anyone who, anyone who struggled with the movie first time round, I don't mean that in the patronising sense as in they couldn't wrap their head around it. I think anyone who struggled to enjoy it first time round, I would implore yeah. to go back and watch it again because there's something about this movie which I think works better on a second viewing. Perhaps it's the comfort of your own sofa um, and refreshment in hand. But yeah, It's funny, I was listening to an episode of The Optimist podcast uh, mm. from a couple of weeks back and where they talked about Shutter Island and they didn't like it for largely the reasons we didn't like it in the first place uh, six years ago. But the more they talked about it, the more they were kind of talking themselves around to actually, no, that bit was quite clever. Then that bit's more. The more you think about this film, the better it gets. It's one of those strange ones that it does so deeply reward the second viewing that it's actually unfair to <laughs> to, crit- mm. to to give an informed opinion based on the first viewing of it, which uh, 
it's asking a lot. <laughs> it means you're going to have to invest at least, what, four and a half-ish hours, maybe a bit more, um, yeah. <laughs> before you can get, get a formal opinion from it. But I think it is actually very well worth doing so. As you say, the, yeah. the more you watch it, the more you think about it, the, the better it becomes and the higher it uh, crawls its way up uh, Scorsese's rankings. It's very interesting. And certainly of the two films we're talking about tonight, I think it's demonstrably, um, objectively, the 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 better of the two by quite some margin. Yes, on a straight comparison, there's, I don't think there's a, any way around it. Uh, yes, Shutter Island is just simply a better film, as, as the point of these things, we're talking about things that deal with roughly similar concepts and see which one does it better. Mm. Uh, while Shutter Island does do it better, because of the way that it's been constructed, it's probably much less influential. It's a little unfair to say that only six years mm. out from it, but given that it is composed of Martin Scorsese doing his impressions of other filmmakers for quite a bit of it. This is more of an enjoyable island to itself. I don't think this will... Uh, there won't be too many films, I think, in future that shout back to Shutter Island, uh, because Shutter well, Island itself is a shout back to so many noirs. Yeah, it was too much like. to other, other stuff in the genre already. Yeah, yeah, which is, is not necessarily a bad thing, and uh, certainly there's... No way around it. When you've got a cast this talented together, good things are probably almost like, almost guaranteed to happen. But it's a tremendous performance from DiCaprio, and the support from the likes of Ruffalo and Ben Kingsley is just uh, tremendous. Of course, oh. Emily Morrison and Patricia Clarkson's in what one scene, or well, technically two, but yeah, makes a tremendous impact when about maybe ten lines of dialogue or something. Um, yeah, oh. another tremendous little performance in a, in a film that's kind of full of them. It's uh, yeah, it was uh, just fun really rewatching this and looking at all these other little uh, little nuances that make it a, a really rewarding uh, film to watch multiple times. It punches well above its weight, and I think it just goes to show how far you can you know you can transcend what is essentially a very pulp paperback. It's further toward the entertainment end of the Lehane spectrum, uh, mm. and you know closer closer to that sort of pulp paperback writing aesthetic. But it just goes to show that actually when you apply the right elements to that and you structure things properly and you are working with a group of people who actually clearly believe in the material and who are operating they're not there to pick up paychecks which a lot of actors yeah. might have done in that circumstance but when you get you know a director of the caliber of scorsese behind it he brings the inspiration of other talent with him um, and it just goes to show how far you can push material that might at first seem trashy and slight towards really a, a rewarding experience in a different medium entirely and yeah I, and for that reason alone i think it's one of the more successful adaptations from a novel that i've uh, mm. i've watched recently um, and just a just a damn fine film in its own right um, so i hope more people who were a little bit disillusioned with it the first time around have come back and come to the same conclusion i would be delighted to hear from any of our listeners if they want to get in touch with us on twitter or the facebooks uh, if they want to share their experience of uh, of shutter island and whether or not their opinion of it is changed over the intervening years that would be lovely to hear absolutely um i think we'll probably just wrap that one up here that's because i don't think my voice will actually hold out for too much longer no. so as you say uh, hit us up on the twitters if you want to email us your opinions do so at podcast at budsonfilm.com or if you want to see us on facebook that's facebook.com slash budsonfilm thanks very much to everyone who's been talking to us on the twitters in the intervening time very much enjoy hearing from you guys uh, so uh, we'll be back on the 20th with a bit of catch up on what's been on release in cinemas lately and until that time take care of yourself and each other goodbye bye bye